Welcome to Rework, a podcast by 37 Signals about the better way to work and run your business. I'm your host, Kimberly Rhodes. There is no lack of business advice. From YouTube to Twitter to Instagram's new threads, finding advice is easy. But who do you listen to and how do you know that their advice is sound? I'm joined by the co-founders of 37 Signals, Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen, to talk more about this. Jason, you recently wrote a piece on your Hey World about this exact subject and more specifically, your approach for filtering out advice. So let's jump right in. You mentioned the first step is not necessarily about the advice, but the person giving it. Tell us tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. And it's not even the person as much as their current or and or recent experience. So I just think advice has an expiration date. You know, David and I are the wrong people to talk to about starting a business. We haven't started a business for 20 years. Like we have some ideas on how you could do it and some principles basically, but like we're just so far removed from that experience that I don't think we're the right people to talk to about it. We're probably good to talk to about how to maintain a business, how to build products, how to talk about products, how to hire people, how to make those kind of decisions because we're doing that day in and day out. But as far as starting one, go talk to someone who started one six months ago. Like that's probably the right person to talk to. And so what you'll often hear though are people, um, and we've probably been guilty of this too, you know, spouting off about how to do something that they themselves haven't done for a long time. They might be right. They could be accurate because some information is evergreen or just, you know, kind of perpetually accurate or useful. But um, I still think that current and present experience and recent experience is, is, a, is a better indicator probably of um, like actionable advice or useful advice. Uh, in most cases. So anyway, that, that, that was sort of the gist of it. And it's, it's kind of come up because I've been spending more time on LinkedIn and you just see people just, you know, and again, us included sharing opinions, sharing points of view. And then I kind of look back at what they've done. I'm like, well, they haven't done this for ever. Um, you know, it's like, why, why, you know, why are we listening to them about that? So that's where, that's where that was born. I think part of the problem here is that the internet just craves content and one of the ways to generate content is to have opinions about all sorts of things, have uh, advice to pass on that might, as Jason said, not have come from an actual experience that you had. Now, that's not to discount, again, that there are people who just analyzes things for a living and they can have great insights on those things. But as Jason mentioned, too, th- this notion of wisdom um, is is very difficult because on any given topic, at least any interesting topic, something that has multiple people opining on it, you'll find someone spouting wisdom saying A and someone saying negative A. Like you can literally find every side of almost every issue being uh, presented by people. And I think that's where it comes down to what can you actually do with this advice? In, in most cases, I find that the people who really like our advice, maybe that's from the books, maybe that's from a blog post or something, it's not so often that we're telling them something new, it's that we're giving them permission to follow essentially their own advice, essentially their own gut instinct. Oh, I already felt that uh, working remotely was a great idea. So now you've given it permission to do so because you've done A, B, or C, and you did it this way. Ergo, it can't be totally out of left field. Someone somewhere had some success with this advice. So I'm now confident following my own voice. And I do think that is a service. I do think it is often difficult for people to trust their own instincts 
Um, especially, as we say, there, there is so much advice that goes in all the different directions. How do you follow something? Well, maybe you just go with your gut, find someone who affirms that and then say like, yeah, it's, it might just work. Something similar, Jason, that you wrote about to what David's saying is that you should ignore more advice than you take. Yeah, there's something that comes up a lot around, um, y'all hear it about like mentorship. People are like trying to like literally collect mentors like trading cards that, you know, and, and they're trying to like, if I put together this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, I will have like the, the advice bullpen that can tell me exactly what to do in any case. And, and sometimes I'll see that they, they actually don't make progress until they can like line up this one person or this mentor. And there's too many people asking other people for, (laughs) for advice, frankly. And I, I think there's a lot of, um, wonderful things that happens from not knowing what the hell you're doing. Uh, and, and being a newbie and, and having no influence, almost like living on an island. And I think that actually benefited us in the early days, especially when we were kind of based in Chicago or David was in Copenhagen. We were so far outside the Silicon Valley uh, world that um, we were not exposed to that world. We could see it from afar, but we weren't soaked in it. And sometimes it's hard when you're soaked in it and you're soaked in this advice from this you know collection of players or whatever. Uh, to, to see anything other than what they see. So I think there's something really beneficial from just like doing it your own way and not asking too many people how how you should do it. So that's kind of what I mean by that as well. I mean, again, all this is contextual. Sometimes you do need some advice and you've never done something before. But I, w- I would say in many cases, there's a real benefit from from approaching it with fresh eyes. And I would encourage more people to do that. I think it's just basic math. If you take all the same inputs as everyone else in your circle, you're going to get similar outputs. You're not going to get so much originality if you're following all these prescribed paths. And that's the other thing I find interesting. People are so eager to listen to someone who did something unique. And what, what was it that worked for them? It was being unique. I remember seeing this uh, breakdown of like, oh, what are the five traits that identify the successful entrepreneur? Is it that they all get up at uh, 5 a.m. and they take cold showers or they eat this way or they exercise or they don't exercise? And the baseline was there was nothing. There's nothing you could deduce. If you could deduce popularity or success to a formula, anyone could run it. So, of course, that's not true. And very often, if you do just follow in this path and you take in all the same sources, you're going to be just a worse off copy. You have to find a way to cultivate originality. And that doesn't mean you can't take advice. But if you take it from the same sources all the time, I think you're going to end up off. This was one of the reasons I originally really liked, say, stoicism, for example. Now, I do know that almost already does fall into the cold shower, 5 a.m. kind of bundle uh, starter pack of uh, tech uh, entrepreneurs. But at the time that I got into it, it didn't feel like that. It felt like it was actually a counter to extreme hustle culture, just work the maximum, all these other things, um, worry about the competitors, be paranoid, in fact, about the competitors. So this was a complete opposite outlook on life and could be an outlook on business. And that's what it was for us and certainly for me. And we got different outcomes. This is how Rework, for example, got to be the book that it was, that was telling a bunch of people, if not outright the opposite, then something quite different than what they would be getting from someone marinated in the 
the vibe of a certain place. And I think that is one of the real dangers of online is that it takes this notion of, for example, Silicon Valley or San Francisco as it was when the physicality of that place really mattered. And then it spreads it across the whole world. You see this in, in, in a bunch of different fields. I, I saw a great write-up on um, architecture, for example. Why do independent coffee shops look the same all over the world? Well, part of the reason is that like Pinterest and Instagram and other mediums like that homogenizes the, the culture, homogenizes the thinking. And it homogenizes in from an outlook of like the quote unquote best aesthetic wins. And that's true in its perhaps original form. But then when that best aesthetic has been duplicated 500 times, by the time your number, coffee shop number 1142, that has the same rustic look. You're like, you're, you're cheap copy. Even if there was something to the original, it's almost like uh, the old cassette tapes, right? You have the original, you, you do a copy to someone else, and then you do a copy to someone else, and then do a copy to someone else. By the time you've done 10 of those copies, it doesn't sound as good. It sounds like something very different. So I think this sense of doubling down on originality leads to the same place that Jason's talking about, is you got to double down on your own gut. You can't take advice from all these people and then expect that you're going to get what they had. The people you want advice for had something unique because they were unique at the time they did it. So there's a real barrier of how much you can pass on. Now, again, this is all sort of a little hypocritical, maybe like we pass on lots of shit, um, lots of advice, lots of opinion all the time, but you still have to filter it through that sieve. One more thing I would add there to tie to this too, is that, is that, I think there's a pretty good chance people really don't know what the hell worked for them. They don't really know what it was. A lot of it has to do with the product of timing, uh, with, with other people spreading the word in a certain way that you have no control over. It's There's so many subtleties that have to probably line up properly for something to work out, which is probably why most things don't work out because so many small things have to come together to work out. And it's, it's easy to kind of uh, write the story 15 years later and look back and go, it worked because of this. It may have been something completely different. So in the same way, people will often look at successful companies and go, if we just emulate what they did, or they'll look at a company, I shouldn't say look at a company and assume they're successful and they'll emulate what they did, but it might turn out that what they're doing isn't working at all. It seems like it's working, but it's not actually working and you wouldn't even know that. And there's a lot of mystery in this. I think that's the other real honest point about it. It's a big, big, huge mystery why certain things work and other things don't. There's a great book called The Halo Effect that goes into this, where you can measure a company in all these metrics. And what people find is that you take a company that's successful. It could be Apple. It could be Tesla. Let's just take those two examples, right? There are polar opposites in very many ways when it comes to culture and how to deal with innovation and how to... They're the opposite, right? But they're both successful. So people will have a tendency to think, oh, because let's say Apple is successful at, well, they're successful at a lot of things. That also means that the way they run HR is amazing. Why wouldn't it be? Because they're a successful company. It might not be true at all. Like most things, if you did sort of a, a graph that trended, like how good are you at this and this and this and this, very few things are just consistently awesome at everything. In fact, most of the time, Companies and people are awesome at certain things because they trade off other things. 
this is to just to plug another book we keep talking about is uh, the Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean Strategy really puts a method to this idea that you can't just be awesome at all the things all the time. To, in fact, come up with a novel product, you have to decide what you're going to suck at. Tesla is a good example there, right? I think we've talked about this before, but build quality. They're just going to say, we're going to suck at that. People don't really care. They don't really care if there's slight overspray on the paint or whatever. They care about some other things. They care about range. They care about charging networks. They care about all these other things. We're going to nail those things. We're going to be amazing at those things. And then we're going to choose to suck at these other things. But the halo effect has this tendency to make people think that like everything a successful person or company does must be good by the virtue of the fact that they're a success. Absolutely not. And the interesting thing is when it is a bit of a mystery, right? You think, oh, it must be Apple is so successful because uh, Steve Jobs was just such a great manager. I I don't know. Could be. Maybe that sort of slightly asshole-y style of being really good. Like that was the secret. But it could also just be that it was a side effect of of the singular vision and, and all these other things. And it was essentially just a byproduct. And if you could do without the byproduct, like, as the saying often goes, if you just clump being an asshole, like that doesn't mean you'll be Steve Jobs. <laughs> we'll all link to uh, David's book club in the show notes. <laughs> all of favorite, David's favorite books. Um, one of the things I was going to add is it's interesting because I feel like with the internet, anyone can make themselves out to be an expert. And we're seeing this a lot with AI that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the podcast that people now are saying, this is how you do it. And these are all the techniques and it's brand new. So how are you an expert? Yeah, I mean, some people have more experience perhaps and to play with it more. And other people are just really good at getting the message out. And they're actually, what they're expert in is they're expert in making themselves appear to be an expert. Uh, so th- that's, that's a skill too. Uh, and, and be believable and, and all that stuff. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, the other thing is like, I'm not a credentialist. I, I don't, I don't look at people and go, what's their background and, and what if they have a major in and they're only experts because of that. So you have to be open-minded uh, around that um, just because someone doesn't have a, particular background on something doesn't mean they're not really good, damn good at it. But yeah, I think when, when something is brand new and people are calling themselves experts, it's a little early. And I think this is one of the, again, we're falling into the same perhaps halo pit here. One of the reasons why rework was a success was it was not Jason and I sitting down, like, let's write a book and come up with a bunch of ideas on how to do things. It was more like a field report. Hey, here's a bunch of things we did over the past 10 years. We think in our analysis of our own situation that these were the most instrumental pieces of advice, which is also one of the reasons why when you say, or at least when I try to give advice, I don't try to give advice to anyone else but myself. I try to remind myself about what it is I would like to take away from the experience that I've been through getting to this point, just that I remember the things that are crucial when we do something new. And this is the thing about advice and collecting advice. Jason, this point about collecting mentors as though they're playing cards, right? There's this um, materialism, collect more and more advice. If I just read five more blog posts and a few more books and like, I'll just have more and more and more. That's not actually the hard part of becoming good and effective and successful, in my opinion. It is figuring out what is the small handful of values or principles or practices that I need to remember when I need to use them. That's what's so difficult. If you have 10,000 ideas in your head of, oh, you should do this, you should do this, how do you even know how to pick it? 
How do you even know where to go? Being able to focus on like, you know what? I have 50 core ideas that drive how I make decisions and so forth. It's going to be more effective. And to some extent, perhaps it doesn't matter even so much which 50 you pick. Just you pick 50 and you don't have a 10,000. So that's another argument for just why you shouldn't listen so much to so many people. You're going to fill your head and you're going to fill it then with doubt. Jason, you had another great post um, a few months ago. If you want more uncertainty, just ask more people, right? If you want to feel even less sure about whether you're going in the right direction, just ask five more people because they'll give you five more different directions. Oh, yeah, I think this, I think that. Now, at some point, you got to commit to your gut which really is the compression algorithm we have for wisdom, it is your gut. Like we can't always articulate, why do we want this? Why do we want the other thing? And I think this is actually what we find quite often. We can't fully explain or articulate to other people why we think a certain decision is correct or not. And sometimes that's being seen as like, that means that decision is unscientific. If you can't back it up with an articulation of exactly why that is, no, no, no. It is because this uh, compression engine of wisdom that is our gut is telling us what it should be based on 30 years worth of experience. Well, I am really curious before we wrap up, because I think there is some value in getting advice versus also moving forward and executing and going with your gut. Like, where do you guys fall in that? Are you asking advice of others or are you really just like blinders on and moving forward? Do you have people that are always your go-to people for seeking information? I would say like for me, it just, it depends on the topic and the criticality. Uh, I think that's a big part of it too. Like there's a lot of things, it doesn't even matter how much more accurate we are about it or whatever, or how, how many people you talk, like you just kind of do it because it needs to get done and you move on. So it's not like you apply, you don't want to apply the same, you know, degree of uh, scrutiny or whatever on every decision. So I think it, it depends. Um, when it comes to product decisions, sometimes I just want to bounce something off someone to see how it comes back. It's not so much what would you do, but more like what do you think uh, of this is another way to do it. Um, sometimes it is how would you handle this or what would you, you know, it just depends on what gaps and what holes you need to fill in. And then other times, I think David and I just like we often will just make a call because it's hard to determine how, if the outcome wasn't really going to change, it, sometimes you're just determined to do something. You have a feel, you're just going to do it. And you can go through the motions of trying to like feel like you've, you've rounded it out by asking a bunch of other people. And it's sort of like you know dotting your I's and crossing your T's and making sure you ticked all the boxes so you feel comfortable in making the decision. Uh, but but that's, almost, that's kind of a, it's a bit of a mirage, really. It's not really probably what you needed to do. So we're pretty comfortable just making calls sometimes. And if they're wrong, they're wrong. Um, it's on us then. I mean, I don't know that, that it's, it really just does depend. I know I just went all over the place, but that's really kind of how it is in my mind. I'd say for me, uh, my favorite mentors to go to are dead people because dead people will have written something down that have survived beyond them, right? They can't dazzle you anymore with podcast appearances or any of these other high bandwidth modes of communicating, they have to dazzle you with their insights written on paper or stone tablets or however far back you want to go. But when I think of the sort of dead people that have had the biggest impact, it is sometimes thousands of years back or sometimes just a few hundred years back. And then you 
can have an internal dialogue with that material and try to apply it to your situation, which requires you to contextualize it. When you take a piece of advice you just saw in a tweet yesterday, it feels like it's already contextualized. It happened this week. It's in this zeitgeist. And that means there's less of you in it. If you take a piece of advice that was given 2,000 years ago, it's not going to translate perfectly. You have to do the translation. And in doing that translation, you personalize and contextualize the advice to the point that it's not really the original anymore. And that's the point. The point is that it comes from, uh, from something else. So I really like that. And then the other mentor I prefer is reality, which is, as Jason say, it's not so or not even trying to get to the quote unquote right answer, but get to the cheapest way of testing a answer, a hypothesis. Let's throw the ball at the wall and see how it bounces back. We could argue endlessly and try to calculate the exact trajectory that the ball and what is the squishiness of such a ball? What's the force I'm throwing it with? There's all sorts of ways of trying to be academic or intellectual about it. Or you can just fucking throw the ball. Just throw the ball. It'll bounce back. And if it wasn't the right trajectory or whatever, you throw it again. This is one of the, <laughs> I, I thought of this metaphor um, in regards to angry birds. I don't know if you played that game, but you, you pull sort of the trajectory of, of this bird and it, it flies, right? How do you figure out exactly how to throw? You throw one bird. Your next bird throw is going to be so much better because you saw how long the first one went and how it hit and the force and so forth. So getting into that rhythm of throwing the ball more often, as Jason said, it depends on criticality. If you only have one ball and unless it hits, you're done. Yeah, all right. Ask a few people. Most balls are not like that. Most decisions are not like that. You get to calibrate. You throw the ball. You figure it out. You, you get to throw it five more times before it's, it's over. And what I find is that the time spent sort of listening to reality is so much better and more corrective than to try, the time spent trying to listen to other people. Yeah, I once threw a ball too. Yeah, dude, whatever. I mean, it just doesn't... It doesn't really matter. So let me get point back to the point of why I continue to give advice despite all this, is that sometimes people just need encouragement. And I think advice is actually that more than anything. It's not even so much about what's exactly inside that piece of advice. It's encouragement that like, no, you should do it. This was one of the arguments for why we wrote the book about remote. There were a bunch of people who sat with the same instincts that the open office wasn't working very well for them. It was not a great way to get work done or, or whatever. And we just gave them the encouragement that, hey, do you know what? You, you could do it this other way. You're already thinking about, wow, wouldn't it be great if that was an option? Oh, it is an option. I think of that when I look back upon all the decisions Jason and I have made. A lot of it came initially from a kickoff book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. So Ricardo Semler, add this to the book club. <laughs> Ricardo Semler wrote this uh, book called Maverick back in the late 90s, I believe, right? Totally radical about how to run a major industrial organization making pumps for oil liners or something with 8,000 employees. And he was so much more radical that the radicalism we went on to advocate in like rework and elsewhere that that always gave me confidence whenever i thought like eh, this might be a little out there i would think of one of ricardo's 
pieces of advice and I'd go like, nah, it's not even close to his level of batshitness. So it's probably all right. I love that. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Rework is production of 37 Signals. You can find show notes and transcripts on our website at 37signals.com slash podcast. Full video episodes are also available on YouTube and Twitter. And if you have a specific question, you need some advice from Jason or David about a better way to work and run your business, leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Or you can send us an email to rework at 37signals.com.